We are Saxon and Nico. And in November 2021, we went to the COP26 in Glasgow to interview different voices, including decision makers, scientists and environmental activists. We attended COP26 as part of the research for our series, Mission Find Aral, which tells the story of the Aral Sea. In the space of 40 years, the Aral Sea turned from the world's fourth largest lake to the world's youngest desert. Despite the fact it is considered by the UN as one of the worst environmental disasters of the world, it is a situation lesser known by the general public. At COP26, we wanted to learn about the other lesser known environmental issues and about what actions and solutions are needed for a better future. Hi, I'm Professor Steve Whitaker. I'm Director of Science at Plymouth Green Laboratory. I'm also the co-chair of the Global Ocean Acidification Observing Network. Brilliant stuff. And uh, so we've just been talking off camera about a potential bridge between the scientific community and indigenous, indigenous communities. So I'm just wondering if you can sort of expand on what you were just uh, about to unravel. Certainly. Uh, really exciting development in green science for the next 10 years has been the launch of the United Nations Decade for Ocean Science for Sustainability. During that decade, there is an, uh, an ambition for transformative science that not only develops evidence that's needed for society, but also bridges across to traditional knowledges and enables traditional knowledge to be brought alongside and given the same weight and gravitas that traditional scientific knowledge has been, has been held in in order to develop more effective and holistic solutions. And do you have any sort of uh, specific examples of uh, sort of on the ground? Because I think, you know, in our attendance so far of the COP, we hear about uh, it from a wide angle lens. So I just wonder if you have specific examples of indigenous communities where there's been some experimentation of uh, such dynamics. No, in my own, uh, in my own perspective, I've, I've not come across any of those examples as yet. Although I was really hard to see that in one of the early planning meetings for the UN decade that was held in Canada, there was an exceptionally strong representation from uh, Indigenous peoples there who were bringing a huge amount of knowledge to the table around issues associated with changing biodiversity, changing ice conditions, and also just changing the, the environment in which organisms are living. So another area that I've seen where we've had direct relationships with, with key stakeholders is in on the west coast of the US, where the oyster hatcheries were, were uh, seeing the, the decimation of their, their stock at particular times of the year, and they were able to understand the cycles and, and when that was happening. Coupled then to direct observations of carbon and chemistry, we can see how ocean acidification is having a, a direct impact. So the knowledge of how how different cycles and at different times of the year that was held within the, uh, the the agriculturist community could then be applied to us in terms of our carbon and chemistry observations and data. And how, what would you say about the role of uh, storytelling? Because it seems as if it's almost a, um, a tool that is not being utilised, the uh, experiences and incredible works of indigenous communities. Um, do you think that they deserve uh, a bigger light in, in the media and in storytelling uh, outlets? I think absolutely they deserve a 
deserve more emphasis. And, and as I was telling you earlier, the, the key thing for us is to is to build the tools that allow those messages to be heard, allow that to be translated into the kind of information and knowledge that can then be implemented into policy. So it's, it's been very easy in the past to think about traditional scientific knowledge and how that then makes that transition into, into policy based on scientific evidence. What we haven't been able to do is find out develop the tools that are needed to allow different types of communities and different types of knowledge to work together to create holistic understanding. Mm, and like, I just have a question more on like more this vision of like we, if we start to understand how indigenous people like our, the resilience of those people, how can we have kind of a transboundary cooperation between lo local and indigenous resilience? Because, for example, what are facing the Inuit, there might be another region in the world which is facing kind of the similar disasters. Yeah. And that if, if a disaster is happening in South America, let's say, how, how we can use this knowledge of Inuit people for these communities? Yeah, and I, I think I, I think what you've expressed there is it, it, is is shared across traditional knowledge bases, but also to, to academia and science. The concept of being able to learn from others is key. You know, I spoke today about the Global Ocean Acidification Observing Network, which was created because there was an understanding amongst the scientific community that this wasn't an issue that could be done uh, by individuals or even small groups and, and, and locally. We needed to get a global perspective to understand where we can share knowledge and, and understand similarities and, and, and develop co-develop solutions. I think it would be very useful if the same kind of mechanisms existed to allow that, that, that sharing of knowledge and information. But again, those kind of networks are, are difficult to, to, um, to establish because they take, they take resources, they take commitment, they take time. So it's going to require investment to allow people to make those connections and make those bridges. But the value that comes from being able to be globally networked and to share experiences and share knowledge is going to be critical. 